listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half hour or so we're going to be talking all things food and drink. As usual, I'm joined by my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd. Hey. Founder of Great British Chefs and Head of Client and Food at Hearst Publications, which does stuff like Esquire and good housekeeping and they've parachuted you in to to have a make sure they do more on food. Have fun, do food. More on food. More on food. Like more, more food. More How food. can it go wrong? And also um we're joined by my fellow presenter, Holly Shackleton, who's editor of Speciality Food Magazine. Hi there. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are Excellent. you? Yeah, yeah. All right. Good. Are you up for drinking some gin? Always. Today. Always. It's definitely yeah. past twelve, so we're fine. Past 12 o'clock. We don't, we don't abide by any of those rules. Um, <laughs> six in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so our guests today are Seb Healy from Manchester Gin, Aidan Monks from Lovingly Artisan Bakery and Lucy Shaw from The Drinks Business. But before we go over to them, you've moved house, haven't you, Ollie Lloyd? Yes. Obviously yeah. not far, knowing you, because you, you, no, we, you we, get a nosebleed if you go outside Islington. Exactly. But we're, we're doing some work, so we've had to relocate. So where are you now? And so we're above a lovely, a lovely artisan bakery off the Holloway Road called Le Peche Mignon. Le and, Peche Mignon. And it's been there for 13 years, run by a right. lovely French guy. And it's amazing because in the morning you can smell the bread. Oh, it's not, it's not yours. You don't have to have to do the hard work. Yeah. And the great thing is you can go down... Uh, I did send my six-year-old son on fr- on Saturday to pick up the bread, which he literally walked out the front door and round the side, and there uh, found the bread, paid the money, and came back very pleased with himself. Six, uh, six years old. At six, and the yeah. bread is amazing. It's is really it? amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Do do croissants and stuff croissants, like that. Croissants, almond croissant, chocolate almond croissant. So you can banana literally just bread. Li- next door in your gym jams. Literally, yeah. And they've also they sell stuff from Brindisa. They've got all loads of French cheeses they're importing. I mean, you you would love it. It's a really kind of sweet. And that's your next door neighbour. It's 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 below us. It's even worse than that. They're literally, <laughs> you know. And uh, actually, it, if you get it right, you could you could have some sort of basket system on yeah, pulleys. You wouldn't my, even have to go outside the front door. Yeah, my son wants to drill a hole in the floor and just literally that's be able cool. to jump I'll down. Do that. But um, I'll do that. You know, I think it could it could Excellent. work. Well, we're joined by Aidan Monks of Lovingly Artisan Bakery. Describe your bakery. What does it What does it look like? What's yours? Do you do other stuff or is it just bread? We just do bread. Uh, we, we made a decision when we started the business to concentrate on just doing bread um, because we have some rather special suppliers um, and we have a, an amazing relationship with a farmer who grows grain for us and specialises in heritage grains. That's wow. uh, Gilchester Organics, um, just north of Hadrian's Wall. So it's sort of almost due east of us. And uh, the flower is amazing. And almost we wanted to pay homage is not really the right word, but to honour that 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 grain and everything it was. Uh, I think it really focused our values that it had to be about the grain. And yeah. it, that that our, one of our missions is to return bread to the centre of the table. Mm. Now, I used to live in Altrincham for about 18 years, I think, um, up north, just south of Manchester, uh, right on the end of the tram line it to is. get on the tram, going to work into Manchester. Um, it's got a, I think it's nearly a thousand years old, the market there in Altrincham, and it got a little bit run down, frankly. It got quite run down. A lot. <laughs> a lot to run down. Um, and then, I don't know what exactly happened. I think the council might have put some money into it and all sorts of other things. And now it's completely transformed and it's transformed the town, I would suggest. Uh, it has, without a doubt, and continues to transform the town in an inspirational way. We have people visiting from all over the country to, to look at what Altrincham Market has done to really what was a very typical rundown town centre. Mm-hmm. Um, and the synergy happened between the council and a very creative, uh, talented couple who had experience of uh, regeneration in Manchester and... They said to the council, listen, we can do a better job of running this market than you. And they Good took point. hold of it. <laughs> they took hold of it. <laughs> and and they really, they, they put creativity into it and dedication. And now it is a, a, a really well-managed, beautiful selection of traders uh, 
and With, uh, without it being touristy is what, is what I it, think as well. It's, it's, it's community serving, isn't it? Community, and that comes very much back about what you were saying about having a bakery, you know, under your door. As you were telling that story, I was thinking it's about community, yeah. mm-hmm. and in Manchester, very much so. We notice this that we've built up an amazing business, and it is about community. People want to buy off producers again, yeah, if they can, and it's if convenient, and the price is not <clears> too much, but everybody expects it to be a little higher and, and everything. But I think what struck, struck me in the market as well. I used to go and get uh, used to be a good fish stall. Though, I used to go and get my fish and my veg there, but wasn't really inspired by anything else. Uh, um, and now, of course, it's just I was a little cheese, nice little cheese stall as well, actually. Um, but now people are going there for coffee and they're having lunch and they're, they're they're actually staying there. They're not just going and getting their groceries. No, they stay, and I think that's the key because those people then spend. Yeah. But what's more significant is it's actually started to spill out now, and the high street has started to regenerate. So it's now sucking in really nice restaurants, and not just restaurants, other shops or so other traders are now moving back in to those rundown shops you know that look very mm. grim and sad um it's very positive because because i i actually feel very very strongly that food can be a great um i don't know what's the word catalyst i think for for regeneration um uh, you know food and drink offerings um and certainly if you get an amazing um independent food shop like MacNaid's in Faversham, which is where I now live in Kent, um, that's definitely made such a positive contribution to the area. Um, They really can, can't they, transform somewhere? Yeah, definitely. And um, people travel for good food, uh, without a doubt. Um, And I think the good thing about independents or, you know, independent market store traders that are really passionate about what they do is that they create a community around them and they kind of invite and welcome like-minded shoppers, I guess. And with, um, with, with High Street struggling, um, it, it actually has a massive knock-on effect for other retailers because mm. because it becomes a destination and it becomes experience as opposed to just going shopping, which, yeah. which is which is what the High Street needs to survive, isn't it? It's also, uh, we've, we've created the space that we've got. We have sort of a, a, tr- a very old traditional market store, but then we have a, a more modern sort of shipping container type concept. And that space in particular, we put a full-size bread oven in. And so we spill out onto the street and, and the, whole, the whole atmosphere that's generated by people working and people being able to see us working creates more atmosphere. It also means that, that our customers have a very direct relationship with the people who are doing the baking. They're not shielded by yeah. a counter and a shop assistant in a tabard. A it's actually a direct connection. Yeah. And then very much so as well, the interest now in people want to know about making sourdough. They come, they ask questions, they bring their loaf that's half-proved and say, can I put it in the oven yet? And, you know, it, we've developed this sort of vibe. We now do a Sunday school. We do courses, but we do a partic- We started doing Sunday schools last year in the summer and we just said, oh, we'll do a sourdough pizza-making course and we set it out a bit like a church with benches and things. For And, and we had 50 people booked. Wow. But by the time we finished, by the time we'd wow. finished the talk, the entire street was full of people and everything. <laughs> that's but it was about that, that spirit that you say the community spirit that the the way that the market has regenerated that area uh, is very much a part of the community now so what what's the names of the couple that that that, that did that nick and jenny uh, nick and jenny they are are real food heroes they are real food heroes and 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 really they populated the market by actually not going to existing uh, food people They, they went and looked for new and young businesses and those businesses have gone on now to be tremendously successful and they've They've also uh, redeveloped uh, part of the old Smithfield area in Manchester, uh, <coughs> a, a venue called the Ma- Mackie Mare, and they've done another venue now in Macclesfield, a similar, where they've converted a similar uh, cinema space into an old cinema space into a sort of food venue. Well, it's funny that, Aidan, because we're going to talk about Manchester in a minute. Right. But uh, before we do that, bit, got a bit too serious there. Got to try some bread. We've uh, got to try some bread. So get 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 your get your, your bread. So well, what have you, you what have you brought us into the studio? Well, I'll, be, before fabulous. I start cutting, yeah. I'll tell you. I brought three breads. I bought one particular favourite is an Emma sourdough. Now this is made with uh, ancient grain. Emma is one of the oldest grains mm. and grown for us uh, by Andrew at Gilchester Organics. Uh, it has sixty percent more vitamins and minerals than wheat. Uh, it's really quite inf- incredible. We visit wow. the farm every year and you arrive at the farm and you go and you see these beautiful fields of 
different types of grain, wheat, rye, spelt, and einkorn, emma. And as you walk to the fields, you sort of think, well, it's a wheat field. But as you get closer, you realize that actually, oh, hang on a second, this is not two foot tall, this is six foot tall. And you walk in, into the field and suddenly you lose the people around you. And the other sensation you get is that these fields are alive with insects, with wildflowers, with birds, not the single monoculture that I used to. It's almost a religious experience. So this, this really, this flower was one of the things that drove us, you know, and, and keeps us focused on what we want to do. Andrew not only has an incredible skill as a farmer, he then mills it on the farm, which is another skill in itself. So he cleans the grain uh, and then mills it beautifully, stone ground. Another food hero. So uh, really, really tremendous. So then he del- we, get, we get that and then we very carefully uh, apply our sort of 30-year-old sourdough starter um, and give all of our sourdough breads have a minimum of 24-hour fermentation. This is one of the keys to the to the health of sourdough and why it's so important. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Can we have a little... Can we have a you little, can have can a you, taste. Let me just cut some a, for you. Have a little cut. So we've got a, a few sound effects. It's amazing, there. isn't it, that the, the, the world of sourdough has really gone nuts over the last... You reckon? Well, no, in, in the sense people are doing it themselves. I, mean, yeah. I have a lot of friends who... who Produce their own sourdough. I've been wholly unsuccessful in my attempts. I was uh, I was literally given a jar of sourdough starter yesterday. So this weekend, <gasps> you need top I'm tips from Aiden. Sourdough well, right, Aiden's your guru. Well, I've just I, spoke to Aiden about that before because uh, it was one of the things that uh, when we had our first child, well, first only first, that's it, uh, Nico. So about fourteen months ago, Jen <laughs> wants hoped. to create. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Jen wants to create him a starter that we then give to him when he either goes yeah. off to university or gets his own house. So it comes back to uh, like an old tradition in Italy where you would have a wedding present would have been a starter that was your grandma's that was passed down to your mum and then was passed down to you that you would then eventually pass on to your children. So I think, you know, we were talking about before, and, uh, you know, the starter's a thing, whether you can keep it alive for 30 mm. years yourself, yeah, I'm not sure. Thing, yeah. Are you going to name your starter? There's a bit of a trend for naming oh, that's it. A good I haven't idea. yet. But I think we should come up. I with name, name everything. Like my car has a name. Does it? What's so why shouldn't my sourdough starter? Called? It's called Millie. Because, you know, mileage. And my friend has a car called Miles, and she's Miles' girlfriend. Miles, I like that. Miles and Millie. So, can we go back to bread now? Maybe call the sourdough silly. And gone right off the subject. So, I'm eating this, Aidan. First of all, the smell actually has got a smell. So, you can smell that slightly yeasty smell. Um, Only tiny. Um, The texture's gorgeous, really soft. But the crust, that's it for me. It's the crust. Mm. Well, we try, I think there's several things there that that, um, we feed our starter regularly. One of our things is Mm. we want to make our bread accessible to everybody. So it mustn't be sort of an elitist thing. Um, The way we bake it, the way we mix it, we want it to be that somebody takes a loaf of our bread home, it gets home, they put it in the bread bin, and it serves them all week. So it lasts for the whole week. So that we make it in such a way that they use every single piece of that bread. And then at the end of the week, they think, what do I need? I need bread. I must go and get my bread. And so it works really, really well. Now, this particular bread, the flavor is one, yes, it's a sourdough. So it has that 24-hour mm. fermentation, which really develops the sour. But most importantly, the grain. Modern grains have no... It, they're inert. They have no flavor. The food industry, when they sort of, as the food industry started to grow, they wanted, they didn't want any flavor in wheat because they needed it in, in food processing. They didn't yeah. want it to add any flavor. So we lost all the flavor that was in the grain. But these grains, these ancient grains, these ungenetically modified grains have the most incredible flavors. So that's how it's done now. And health properties. Health properties. Yeah. When I say 60% more vitamins and minerals in that grain, it's really quite staggering. But because the plants are six foot tall, conversely, their roots go down yeah, deeper yeah. into the ground. So they pull more from the Nutrients. ground. There is one thing missing with this, though. Tell me. Butter. A big, <laughs> huge knob of butter. I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that our ancient grain, and that's what we focus on. So every year we go to the farm and see what Andrew has grown. Unfortunately, last year we got a real taste of how fragile our food security is because we didn't, the einkorn crop was wiped out last year because of the weather, because yeah. the weather... F- last year came in from the east so the fields were were waterlogged they weren't able to get onto the fields to harvest and more importantly they weren't even able to to sow 
the winter wheat this yep. year. So this year's harvest is going to be affected again. And that's just a slight change in the weather. Mm. So that's something that concerns us for the future. But most bakers are unaware of that because their grain comes yeah. from all over the world. Uh, so it doesn't matter. Lucy, your thoughts on that? You devoured that. You want... It was delicious, yeah. It had that kind of yeasty uh, Gorgeous, yeah. taste to it. In a, in a... And yeah, just it just felt very, um, it sounds like, Authentic. Everyone says authentic, but it did. Yeah. It did feel, yeah. But I, I would have loved a bit of salted butter on it. Yeah. What, what else have you got there for us? Is it well, the next one, the next one I brought for you. This is this is a malted barley sourdough. Now we get a crystal malt, so a brewer's ingredient from Warminster Maltings, and we that's crushed, and then we cook that into a porridge, and we add that barley porridge into the sourdough. The malted barley has. Proper malted barley, crystal malt, has a real complex flavour uh, from the dark crystally bits that are almost chocolatey notes through to the sweet notes. So you get a full range of flavour. Granary bread ha- is malted, but it's a generic malt. It's just a monotone mm. flavour. This like is malty. one of our favourites. Yeah. Let's have a look at this then. I can't wait. Who bought the butter? Maybe... Nobody's got any butter. Yeah, you start waving. Normally carry you start waving at the, 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 the locals to <laughs> yeah. see if they can bring us some butter. I don't think anybody can see into the studio. Butter, anybody? I'm really um, excited about this because yes, there's a bakery in um, Southwold in Suffolk um, that does mm. the same with Adnams. Oh, see, I love that. Which is mm. just, it's my favourite. Mm. That is beautiful flavour. You can really, you can, it, it really, you get the real benefit of that malt. Mm. There are some bakers who use Um, spent malt so they'll they'll have an association with a local craft brewer and they use the spent grain but this really is the whole grain and the whole flavor what do you think ollie it's got such a depth of flavor i mean really really i know we're not supposed to mention other brands but it is it is we always do though we do we do we we always pretend we don't Um, but what is so extraordinary is that the depth of that bread even if you take you know the the sort of the sourdoughs you get from the big supermarkets and occasionally i'll admit that i don't was going to my baker's love too, but you know we often have you know two children, a lot of bread consumed. You know, actually, we do end up with a sourdough from a from a good supermarket, and it's just nothing like that. Mm. I, I've I stopped mean, buying bread; I just make my own. I just it's just awful. Mm. I need you to have a little branch down in <laughs> in Kent. All the way, you wouldn't we, mind. We'd rather, right. we'd much rather that the supermarkets actually got their act together and made it properly, and not not pursued the route that they've gone on now, where where they've actually all come together and agreed that they can call it sourdough even if they add a bit of yeast and even if they speed up Is the that what they've done? They have done. So all of the big people, all of the big bread manufacturers and the supermarkets have got together. It's really quite frightening when you actually you know, take uh, a sourdough from one of the supermarkets and actually test because you can do a really simple experiment with sourdough where you can cut a slice and you can dunk it and properly dunk it into a, a, a cup of water, but a bowl of water, and squeeze it like a sponge. And sourdough will spring back, and you can hardly tell it's been in water. But if you take the supermarket sourdough and do the same, sometimes it'll just go into a solid lump, or sometimes it'll and that's just. That's what it's doing in your stomach. Yes, or sometimes yeah. it'll just act like a soft commercial bread and go like duck food. But that, that springiness and testing it in water is the way to see whether it's a really well made sourdough. You'll have to try that tonight with your. Well, so to be honest, now we're living in another bakery. We're not. We're not. We're only using local local mm-hmm. stuff. Can I ask and you a finally, question? yes, but ask a question, Lucy. We're doing the next I, one. You know, the big theme of the year is about trying to minimise waste and food waste, and bread is one of the biggest things that gets thrown away. Do you do what do you do with your bread that you don't sell? We 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 make what is ordered okay. so we don't we, we generally don't generate much waste however we do generate some and we have two things that we do one we make uh, sourdough bread crumbs that we sell commercially uh, to chefs and things so so nobody really mm. makes sourdough bread crumbs yeah. so bread crumbs is a very popular product um, and then the other thing we do is we when the sourdough is actually staled a little we slice it really thinly about four millimeters thin and we just bake it off in the oven with olive oil and salt and we bag them up and they're sourdough crackers but actually when you taste them compared to the commercial crackers that you buy that have been manufactured as such the flavor again you get all of this flavor that's in here you get in buckets and so really we don't waste any bread at all that's our real aim is not to good answer mm-hmm. pass the bread <laughs> now this is the last one now this this is our hook uh, so when we're on the Your market hook. and we ah. have the samples there obviously we have people who come and go 
I'm not paying that for bread. <laughs> you know, and, and, and various other conversations. Our important thing is to start a conversation. So this bread is our cheese and marmite sourdough. Mm. Now this, we have Cheese this on, and marmite. Yeah, cheese and oh, marmite. I love marmite. So we don't, uh, we don't say what it is on the counter. People pick this up and yeah. as they pick it up and taste it and walk away and then they turn around and go, oh my God, what was that? Oh, cheese and marmite bread. <laughs> God, I just need to toast that. But it's another you, big knob of butter on, and then you're fine. And done. you've got all of that. It's you're still done. a That's long delicious. fermented natural leaven, natural leaven sourdough. I think oh. the fermentation has a really positive effect on the marmite flavour. It takes the edge off the marmite, and you just get a beautiful savoury taste. Hang on. So, what is what is your bread costing? <laughs> well, anything the our Emma loaf is nine pounds. Uh, but, but that's a big loaf. But that's big a loaf. big loaf. That's a big loaf. A uh, the loaf. cheese and marmite sourdough is four pounds fifty. How much for the bit you've just cut? <laughs> the bit. <laughs> yeah. you, you, listen, you live local. You're not getting any of this. To be clear, you know you can you can drive there. We're, we're a two-hour train journey away yeah. down here. So it, it works. I mean, but I have to say that people, the price is not an issue. It's not a conversation we ever have at the counter. People buy it because they love it. And, and we make it, we have a story to tell people. Everybody knows about the heritage grain, about where we get the flour from. Actually telling our story to the customers is what is a very important part of what makes them loyal. And then it has to deliver in taste. And, and that delivery in taste and and keeping the way it keeps and the way that they can use it. If if the bread went if the bread was unusable after two days, then we we wouldn't have customers coming back. Which one's the cheese and marmite you've got there? Can I take that home, please? Oh, oh please yes. let me take that home. <laughs> oh, I love that. Can you imagine that as toast? Oh, yeah. fantastic. And then the one we first started, you said that was seven pounds. I'm sure people are no. going, my God, I'd never pay that for bread. But it's literally two foot long. I mean, it's it's massive. It's I mean, that we couldn't have that in our house because we'd, we'd never eat it. It's, 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 it's a, fam- huge, that's a family song. If you had a family, that would keep you going all week, wouldn't it? That would definitely keep us going it, all week. It mm-hmm. would, and, and, but also it freezes incredibly well because it's so the high high moisture. So, so commercial bread is about 55% water, and then they add various fats and other things to keep it soft. Whereas good sourdoughs are generally in excess of 70% water, so 70 to 80%. And then obviously move on to the ciabattas and things, which are about 90 So what's the best water. way to freeze bread? How, how would you do that? Well, just I would in, in a, a, in a common sense way in a plastic bag. and So so you don't want to, to dehydrate in the freezer. Yeah. And the reason it freezes well is because obviously freezing does remove some of the moisture. So because it's high hydration, it, it does come out. Does it okay. doesn't need the fat. And that's the thing. It yeah. doesn't, apart from the cheese, we don't add fats to any of our breads. It doesn't need so it. So you could take that loaf, cut it in three, and you know, freeze two bits and, and then um, just take them out of the freezer in the morning when you need them. You could. And, and a lot of people actually slice it and just pull it out one okay. slice at a time. Very good. Do you deliver down south? Oh, please tell me. You can, have, <laughs> can I have that cheese and marmite delivered down? How do we do that? We can post I'll get it a truck. Get a truck of it. <laughs> Delivered and I'll freeze it. So the answer is no. I'm getting no. I'm sorry. We're oh. Manchester, Manchester. That's us. That's as far okay. south. Oh, well, I'm going up in a couple of months. I should be on your on your stall. Don't trust me. How much is the malted one? The malted barley is just three fifty. Oh wow! So it's very accessible. That's really, everybody. Nice. That's, That's a really nice one yeah. as well, isn't it? Mm. And, and the important thing, and as I said about this, about putting bread back at the centre of the table, this is bread that's good for you. That long fermentation, naturally leavened, it completely breaks down the protein in the flour. It means that you have no problem digesting it. Nobody, no matter how healthy you are, can digest yeasted bread. Uh, mm. it, commercial yeast was only invented in the 1920s. It's a different bacteria called saccharomycin. And when that ferments, it creates acetic acid. Lactic bacteria in the sourdough starter, as that ferments, creates lactic acid and it breaks down the phytates in the flour that allow the, you to absorb all the vitamins and minerals. And so pre, pre-commercial bakeries and the food industry, there wasn't a wheat intolerance problem. It is something that has evolved over time. The bread industry is at a point now where as if they actually acknowledge this knowledge, which is becoming more and more prevalent, and also the significance and the growing awareness of the gut biome and how all these natural food products like cheese, sourdough bread, kimchi, kombucha, the positive effect they have on the gut biome, um, the, the bread industry could actually genuinely put itself back at the middle of the table as a health food, mm. not as the pariah of... I mean, I mean, for me, having one of those loaves of bread absolutely fresh, go and buy that in the morning, get some great cheese, charcuterie, pickles... Mm. You don't need anything else in life, do you, really? But good breakfast. I mean, that with, you know, mushrooms, butter, eggs. I mean, 
just gorgeous. a happy it's a happy start to the yeah. weekend isn't it it's really good so so moving slightly north something less good slightly for you, north well, that's very good for you is well it? yeah could be um it's very good for you well yeah hopefully. <laughs> anyway. it's very good for you Seb. So, so moving slightly north um so manchester um it has had quite a renaissance i would say and Into then it went the down city. a little bit and uh, now it's gone up again yeah i think well i think what's in terms of the city in, in itself i mean i moved there in 2008 2004 can't remember uh to be a student 2004 mm. and i think that's been a huge driving force behind the city as a whole in that you've got this huge young population there that for the most part they've stayed and got jobs there and it's been a self-fulfilling sort of cycle that the more people are there the more restaurants the more bars there are and that more the more sort of hip the scene becomes and the more people living in the city center because you know it is a very young uh, yeah uh, sort of population in in the middle of the city yes isn't it? and you know thankfully they all like to eat out and drink out and uh have a good time. So Got the curry mile. Do you know what? I very rarely go there now. So it's <gasps> just right. so far out of the city. That <laughs> when you're a student, you always go there because it's it's really it's right next door to the student population, mm. um, and it's BYO. And so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have license, your own gin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, why would you suddenly start making a gin? Well, How it's, did that happen? Well, it, we, uh, we say on the, if you look at the bottles on the back of uh, any Manchester gin bottle, you'll find that it all started with a love story. So it's it was about seven years ago, uh, and it's about me and my soon-to-be wife who fell in love over a bottle of gin. And while that sounds really romantic, the actual story uh, is I was out at half one on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> yeah. So it was a school night, and uh, my two friends were chatting up two women and I literally hadn't said a word for about three or four minutes. And it's at this point, and you know, you, you can never take these words back. And I didn't realize at the time that I'd tell this story a million times over. But unfortunately, I said, I'm going to go speak to the nearest unattended woman. Uh, I know it's it's awful, but I can't take it back. Make it sound like a loo. <laughs> <laughs> but I walked over and genuinely, the first thing I ever said to Jen is what are you drinking? The first thing and the first word she ever said to me was gin and tonic. And what was the gin that sparked your love affair? Well, unfortunately, we were in a rum tiki bar, so uh, that that started a whole conversation about why you should be ordering uh, gin in a rum bar, and it ended up and culminated in about sort of two o'clock in the morning. Jen thought she had me beaten when she said her favourite gin was Monkey Forty Seven, and uh, I rather cheekily responded, "I've got a bottle at home." And uh, oh, read Jen. from that what you will. Jen, what, are you, <laughs> what are you thinking, Jen? To this day, we don't know whether there was one at home or not. But, really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Moving they're, they're, swiftly they're, yeah. on. But yeah, fast forward. Uh, a salesman through and through. <laughs> but fast forward uh, about three and a half years. So this is uh, probably in 2015. We were looking to... We're that really irritating couple that want to spend all our time together. So we were trying that to come up with... That is quite irritating, I know, actually, yeah. So. Uh, public, phase of public displays of affection and everything. Um, but so we wanted to... We were going to open a bar originally, and in researching opening a bar, we were uh, at a venue uh, in Sheffield, actually, and he was showing us around, and he said, oh, do you like gin? And we said, we love gin. And he said, oh, I'm making it in the back room. And in a room smaller than the studio, there was a man sat on a stool making gin. And that was our first sort of ever exposure to what is, you know, true craft artisanal gin making. And, you know, we thought it was made in a factory with, you know, 10, 20 people tending to these huge, you know, 5,000 litre stills. But to see someone working on a 30 litre still, that was the, we sort of say the proverbial light bulb moment when we thought, you know, our dining room's not doing anything. And so we uh, bought a 60 litre still and set up our first distillery in our dining room. So where's your dining room? Where uh, were you living then? Uh, still in the same house now. So we're in Chalton. Oh, so Chalton. Uh, a bit out and a little bit gentrified. Yeah, yeah tiny bit. bit. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean you got we have a, our own local bakery as well. Exactly. Um, it means you've got a little bit of space though. So you've got a dining room. You've got a massive sixty litre still in there. Well, sixty litres. It's. It, I mean, it's not that big. It's. It's probably its diameter probably forty five centimetres wide, and then tall. It's probably only three four foot tall. Hmm. Uh, so our dining room was three metres by four metres, and just we fitted it in, well just fitted it in. But uh, <laughs> we also had to bottle and label there, and. Uh, we actually distilled through the night because we both had full-time jobs. So we'd put the still on at seven at night. We'd go to bed at 11. We'd get up at two, get up at four, get up at six, turn it off at seven, then go to work. It's like, it's like tending for a baby. It really is. Yeah. And now we have one of our own. I'm much rather having the still. Uh, <laughs> never screams yeah. in the night once. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, um, just tell us the name if you're still. Everybody names their twins. So what's yours yes. called? So our first still was called Wendy. Yep. So that's named after Jen's mum, uh, who sadly passed away before we managed to open the business. But it was sort of a really fitting name for her because uh, she was a fiery redhead and she loved gin. So it, there was no better name for it. And, you know, we've come sort of full circle again. We've just launched our new distillery bar and restaurant uh, last year. Uh, and we've bought a thousand litres still. But so to make sure that Jen's mum's name is always on the back of every bottle that we've ever produced, we've named our new still after her nickname, which was Wonderwend, which I think is quite Wonder fitting Wend. again. So Excellent. our new still is called Wonderwend as well. Lovely. So let's have a little taste. Uh, what what do you think we should go for first? A bit, of, would, a bit of raspberry infused or I would signature? always start with our signature. So signature, signature is the okay. baby. You know, you shouldn't um, say you live, love one more than the other, but yep. I do. So we've got some glasses there, uh, Ollie. Yes. And we've got some ice. Uh, how would you recommend that you taste So I would try it uh, straight, first of all. With one big. Or just like, with some ice or just on its own? Uh, no, with so. a bit of ice, it'll cool it down, but it, it sort of either way, you'll get a little bit of dilution, which isn't the end of the world. Um, but what you've got from this gin is it's everything me and Jen love about gin. So we came up with this recipe drinking copious bottles of gin and figuring out which gins we liked, which gins we didn't. And so this is a citrus-led contemporary-style mm. gin where to keep true to sort of Manchester and our Mancunian roots, in all of our gins, we actually distill with locally hand-foraged dandelion and burdock, which is for wow. anyone who's lived in the north, you have fish and chips and D&B uh, on a Friday night. So You do. And it grows next to waterways. And, you know, if you look at Manchester and the, the rivers that flow through Manchester and the canals, we're nice. so intrinsic to the growth of Manchester. It's a really fitting tribute to Manchester that we use something that grows on, on something that basically grew the city. So, so you definitely can taste the juniper there. How, how many bottles of gin do you reckon you drank? testing and getting to this and did you write i mean it off? is my doctor listening and or? did you write no. it off as a business expense oh 100 <laughs> percent. Uh, everything is research and we own like i say we own a bar and restaurant now so every time i eat out that is that is, that is okay. plausible the, the, research the, the tax man is listening that is true that's true <laughs> yeah mm. uh, how much gin have we drunk I, I wouldn't like to think in the distillery alone we've got over 200 different bottles of gin um because anytime you do a fair where you meet another distiller you find that you know the distilling fraternity is you know it's really friendly and so we always say as a golden rule, if you come to our distillery and you're a distiller, bring us a bottle of gin and we'll give you one of ours and we'll show you around everywhere. Enough, and the same when we go to another distillery in this country or abroad, we always take a bottle of gin and you'd be amazed how many doors get opened when you bring a bottle of gin. Hmm. So yeah, we've got well over 200 bottles that we've not Sounds actually like paid for. Sounds like the story for. of your life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so where can, do you get your juniper from? Uh, juniper comes from Macedonia. So it's one of the biggest producers. Uh, in, well, it's probably the biggest producer in the world. And so all our botanicals, you know, much as we'd like to do as much locally as possible. You can get juniper in Scotland, uh, but the essence of when you're trying to grow a brand is, is consistency of the product and consistency of that flavour. availability. Yeah, but why... Well. So juniper from Scotland is really... It's got really piney sort of notes to it and, it, you know, it's delicious in gins, but to get that consistency, if, you know, if, if the batch isn't as good or, or, or the yield isn't as high, you, you want to, when you're trying to grow a brand, to, to sort of nail that sort mm. of consistency. So I, so I can do the old citrus on this as well mm. and... and uh, Weird, dandelion and burdock. Yeah, I can get a little edge of that. So what what the dandelion, we actually use the root of the plant. So we actually dig it up, dehydrate it all. Uh, and what it does is it adds... It adds so we all, I always say that when you're trying a gym, which is why I like people to try it straight, uh, you should go on a little journey. So you don't, anything that's one-dimensional is, is sort of here and then gone. It, it for me, isn't a test of a true spirit. So, you know, like I say, at the start, you get that sort of citrus notes. In the middle part, you'll get a little bit of spice from Grains of Paradise and that dandelion and burdock. And then on the end, we we use quite a lot of licorice and almond, which is a natural sweetener for gin, um, which sort of levels it out. And then that should sort of give you the length of the drink, uh, is sort of how we'd sort of describe it. So a lot of people would use um, cassia bark. Yes, we use example. cassia as well. Uh, but that's not very... I don't, I don't taste that very much No, here. again, but... Uh, I do like so, the, um, the sort of slight nut edge so when we're coming up with a recipe it's one of those where you still get these it's like i was so i was liking everything in gin making to cookery it's the only way I, it's the only way my mind works i've been obsessed with cooking since i was seven eight years old uh making my own dinner for myself and i still don't know what Worcester sauce tastes like but i know it goes really well in a stew like a bay leaf i'm not entirely sure what a bay leaf does but i know it adds that depth mm. and it's it's things that are, so in gin making things off each other isn't it yeah to, to, to so it's all it's i'd liken and the best way to describe making gin is making a stew and the difference between so gordon ramsay could give you the ingredients that go in a stew but you could end up making what your grandma made and nothing like a michelin star stew all it is is down to is that level of detail and the balance. So we weigh all of our botanicals 
to two decimal places and it's that sort of being that precise is how you get that balance and it is it is only about balance and tasting each little individual part but you know I always say in gin making they're best friends like they're, so in cooking if you make me a dinner without garlic and onion I'm probably not going to eat it and in gin <laughs> if, you can't make a gin without juniper and coriander like yeah. it's and lemon and orange best friends and so there's all these different things that sort of group together and so if you're like for instance if you're trying to make an italian style gin you'd use basil you'd do oregano if you want to make an asian inspired gin you'd use kefir lime leaf you know you'd use limes you'd use cinnamon and there's you it can is very take much like cooking, cooking it is, it's exactly because like like flavors that work in a dish work in a gin yeah. as far as i'm concerned and if they wouldn't work on a plate probably don't put them in a gin aiden what's your thoughts my thoughts are the enjoyment of having neat gin and actually experiencing those flavours that we just talked about. And how they're quite clear, those flavours. They're very, they? very clear. And I mm. love the dandelion and burdock essence, mm. which you can actually catch, yeah. and the licorice. But I think it's an absolute pleasure to drink it neat like this and actually experience that and not experience tonic. Tonic. Mm. It's true, because we, we often taste on this programme. It's a terrible programme to be involved with. We don't but, actually like our job yeah, much. Yeah. Um, we often try neat gin, and it, it does. It, it's really true, isn't it? Because you, you never drink it neat. No, you never drink it neat. It's it's really pleasant. I'd I'd actually definitely do it again now. Yeah, Lucy, you're you're a drinks. Yeah, um, I love the kind of purity of of it on the nose. It had a really lovely clean um, no, aroma. Um, on the palate, I actually got like a kind of rose water Turkish delight exoticism slightly. I don't. That was kind of what came through for me. But... It's not in there, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, again, that was the one perception thing I, I got. But it, the reason we have sort of three or four in the core range is we would never tell anyone what their palate is taking. Like flavour is such an individual thing. It's like trying to tell someone how blue or blue something is or how green it is. It, someone's eye sees something differently and people's tongues work differently. And so we have a couple of different gins that are, are specifically designed to hit different sort of palates because we've genuinely found we've done probably 150, 160 gin shows uh, throughout the UK. And... There are 150 gin shows. Oh, there's easily more. There's probably a million. You know, you could go to... we, Me, me and Jen first started the business. We... We were just still through the night. On a Friday night, we drive somewhere in the country. And for 14 months, we didn't have one weekend off because we were doing various different gin festivals. But we found the further north you went, the more sort of herbaceous people like the gins. And the further south That's you funny. came, the more... Yeah. And I didn't realise that regions actually have a flavour become homogenised into mm. a region, which is really strange. Um, well, well, just before you, you ask your question, Ollie, no, I've just poured myself yeah. some um, so raspberry-infused gin. I do like yeah, that. Yeah, that was my ooh. My ooh yeah. was my Oh, ooh I thought you were ooh, I'm going to ask a question. No, 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 my ooh was like, wow. Mm. So this this really is good, our sort of homage it's, to... Aiden, uh, you thought you liked the first one. You wait till you try this. This is our homage to an old Tom style gin. So yeah. the old Tom is tradition, was always one of my favourite styles of gin. And uh, our favourite fruit, mm. myself and Jen, is raspberry, so... We thought, what a sort of better combination uh, to sort of blend the two together. So we actually distill with raspberries and then we macerate with raspberries and then add some homemade sugar syrup uh, that we make as well. But you see, I, we, there was another one that came on the show that was a raspberry ghost, I think it was called. And I really liked it. And then I, I bought a bottle and I tried it afterwards and it was too sweet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was okay. My wife thought it was too sweet because she has a much better taste than me. Um, that definitely isn't. There isn't. You said you had it's sugar a syrup. But so it, again, it's, it's a real gin. gin. It's state of gin. Again, uh, I'm really anal about gin in itself that it should taste of juniper berry first and foremost before anything else comes through. But going back to the cooking, the gin is there as a seasoning. It's not there as a, it's, sorry, the sugar's there as a seasoning, not as anything else. So per bottle, we're talking about six mil. So, you know, it's next to nothing, but all it does is it just rounds that raspberry flavour off. Because when you distill with raspberry, you actually get a really floral note from the raspberry. And it's only when you sort of macerate afterwards that you, you get that sort of round sort of sweetness as well. So, Lucy, what, what do you think compared to the... Oh. Yeah, I mean, the raspberry really comes across like quite uh, potently, but in a good way. And it's kind of got that, again, that nice, clean, pure flavour. And the sweetness is there, but it's subtle. Yeah, uh, I, I, And you could definitely sip this on its own. Some, some. I actually think that's... That's something yeah. with some ice. Oh, probably yeah, not, it's a summer, not tonic. Si a summer sipper. Yeah. If you had tonic, it would just be too sweet. Mm. Well, Jen would say that this that raspberry gin is her day gin. Uh, yeah, and signature is an evening gin. Yeah. Oh, I've, got, I've tried one with bacon, but it didn't come off. Uh, so. Oh, yeah, bacon whiskey. It's an interesting strategy. Bacon whiskey. It works well. Yeah, that can work. Together. I mean, it can yeah. also bacon be disgusting. Burn. You try doing it yourself. I mean, I've made some disgusting things. And where are your gins available? So the gins are available at Booths, M&S, uh, Majestic stores as well. And not called Majestic anymore, they're called. No, there is a Majestic. Like, the Majestic. Yeah. And then obviously online at manchestergin.co.uk. Um, but yeah, we're still growing as a brand. You know, we're, like I said, we're, we're less than four years old now and we're now starting to see a sort of international growth as well. 
so Canada most recently, the Canadian government bought it off us, which was nice, wasn't it? Interesting. Well, they have yeah. a monopoly, so you, you have to sell it to the Canadian government. Do you? Yes, so you can't. So it's a bit like Sweden, where it, well, it's called a monopoly. The the government actually, for each region, buys it off you, and then they sell it. So it's called, the, well, in Ontario, it's called the LCBO. And you can only buy spirits and wines at an LCBO shop. So if yes, you go to Iceland's, the supermarket, you can't go. Iceland's the same. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent strategy for controlling what comes into your country and how to raise taxation. Yeah, I was going to say automate more. No, yeah. do you know what I really liked about Iceland? Um, I, I, I thought it's a bit rubbish that you can only buy alcohol in government shops. And I thought it'll be really rubbish. And then when I went, it was it was fantastic. There was loads of brands. There was loads of... But, but actually what they're just trying to do is, is, is control the... You know, to control the price for a start. I suppose if you get... and and control the amount that people drink, not not in a nanny state, but yeah, you, you know. I, and actually, as a craft what, I, I, warmed, I warmed to it actually. As a craft distiller, so I was in America, and, and depending on which regions you went to, they all had some had the LCBO model, and people two two sorry two uh, kilometers over the border could sell it freely, and then yeah, that's it can almost stifle if you're if you're so when we first had the business, is, though, if you're we in went, Iceland. Yeah. yeah, so you're okay. But we went Nobody's door-to-door sales with a bag um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and selling each individual bottle to wine shops was how we started the business. And yeah. In where, we, in the UK? Yeah, in Manchester. So our lo- so Chorlton, our local wine shop, uh, Tiny Tipple, bought one bottle of us on, on Thursday, the 16th, uh, 12th of May. Um, and we got 10, 12 metres out of the road, uh, down the road before the Rangans. So we just sold it. And our first ever bottle actually went to South Africa. Because a daughter of a man who'd moved away was going in there to buy him something from Manchester to take to him to remind him of his hometown. There you go. That's but good. had it not been had the rules not been applied that we could have knocked door to door, we wouldn't have been able to have started yeah. as as well as we did. So yeah, I can see the the element of control, but in the sort of craft world, you want to be able to that's true grow and, and yeah yeah. Well, um, thank you for that. Um, I'm just going to have a little chat with Lucy Shaw as I'm drinking my. Um, raspberry infused gin um, and Lucy is editor of Drinks Business and you have special interest areas including Spain, South America, Champagne and the London on trade. Yes indeed yeah so restaurants and bars things like that. Restaurant and yeah. bars. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about South America and, and booze. I don't, I don't have much. Well you have um, <laughs> you have certain drinks that you like don't you Ollie from South America? Sri Lanka. No Different South world. America. Don't you like, um, isn't, isn't Mezcal from... Mezcal is from South America, yeah. So yeah, I thought you liked yeah, that. I don't, don't mind it. I don't mind yeah. It's not something that's, that's, that features heavily in my, my drinks cabinet. Is it not? Oh, no. I thought it was. Okay. Is that what we should be drinking from South America? So what's, what should we be drinking from South America? Um, well, obviously on the wine front, the big nations are Chile and Argentina. I'm sure yeah. every one of you would have had a Malbec. And mm. It's hugely popular over here. It's kind of velvety and easygoing. So, um, and yeah, on the, on the spirits front, very much um, tequila and Mezcal. So tequila made from agave the best stuff from blue weeper agave and then mezcal is it's kind of like rebel naughty <laughs> smoky brother that can yeah. be the rules are a bit more um free um so in terms of character and what you can yeah and in so, terms yeah. of what it's yeah. the region as well isn't it i thought it's a, a wider region uh, te- tequila is has to be from tequila yeah. so it's like champagne um but yeah mezcal can be made kind of more widely yeah. And then talk to me about champagne. So, so I live in Kent, and obviously um, we're getting more and more sparkling wine. Indeed, uh, coming out, which is amazing. I think it's uh, really um, exciting. Yeah, very, very, very exciting. And and obviously, I think climate change has something to do with that. How is how is the French? How are the French coping in terms of the champagne region? Because <laughs> the, I think they are actually fighting a one might describe a losing battle against the weather in terms of in terms of quality and production or, or is that not true at all i mean in terms of branding in looking at the wine trade no one brands better than champagne they're incredibly strong and more like a spirit brand really some of the top they call them grand marks you know things like people know those names um i think champagne needs to not rest on its laurels i think um english sparkling is it, it's small it's a small proposition but it's growing and it's very exciting. I think we've got the, the terroir to match, we've got the similar chalky soils, we've got the temperatures a bit lower, but we, we certainly can, um, you know, get our grapes to ripen fully. And, and um, some of the best stuff in England is actually um, winning blind tasting competitions and people, the, the really top stuff, actually, if you got it blinded, it would taste like a champagne. 
And some of the champagne houses, very interestingly, are, you know, um, looking very, uh, you know, keenly at what's going on. And we've had Tattinger invest in the UK and Kent. So it's, it's such a long process wine. It's going to take a while before we see these bottles. But it's called um, Domaine Evremont. And um, Pommery, are the first, they've actually already bottled um, their English fizz called Louis Pommery, which is a which is a partnership with Hattingley Valley. And are they allowed to call it champagne even though it's grown in the UK? Absolutely not. No, no, no. no. It's, it, no okay. uh, champagne can only come from champagne. Yeah. So and even back though, in the day with wine marketing, you yeah. know, something from Australia was called champagne. Sure. But the champagne are, are absolute. But even though they're a champagne absolute. house based in champagne region, they're yep. not allowed to call it champagne if it's grown in no, the UK. No, no, no. And they okay. wouldn't want to because the whole point is to... It has um, its own yeah, char- it's, character. Well, there was a big debate a few years ago, English sparkling wine. You know, we've got carve, we've got Prosecco, we've got champagne, these kind of one word. Um, we you don't know, have a description was, for ours, And do that's we? the thing. And, but actually, I feel I it, if it ha- it would have happened by now, I think, you know, yeah. we've had what, Britpop and, you know, various kind of things thrown in the ring. But um, English fizz, English sparkling wine, I think, just seems to do we the tricks. So. We need, um, we need a generic. Like yeah, or Br- to... Bretagne was one, one idea. Oh, no. but it I don't think we do. <laughs> I don't think we do because I think, as, as you say, the volume, and we talked about this the other day, the volume is tiny. Yeah, it's, very, it's very small. But last year was a bumper year. I think it was 13 million bottles were made. Okay, so. and how, what does that compare to show? Champagne? Okay, you're getting me. I'm not sure, but but what are we talking? 130 million. I I really wouldn't want to say the the wrong thing. It is a fraction of champagne, but. Right. Uh, there's right. almost so much English wine being produced that in the industry we're talking of a risk of an oversupply, which is something we never thought would happen. So, um, but, but there's no oversupply potential in the UK, is there? Well, there could be. There could be in terms of they haven't reached many export markets yet. Is there much of a, Is there enough of a domestic market? This is ex- an expensive product. Costs about thirty, thirty-five pounds just for a brut non-vintage. So, um, all vintage. But I mean, it's 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 an investment. That's a lot of money to ask a, a shopper to spend on a bottle of fizz that they may. I've never tried. Um, you know, still it hasn't rather, got that security. Still rather do that and buy their mainstream champagne, I have to tell you, because I do yes. think the quality is better. And actually, uh, what yeah. I think is really interesting is champagne does have a taste. You know, mm-hmm. there's variations on that. And I think what's really interesting with the sparkling white wines in the UK is that there are they are developing their own taste profile. Very much so. It's almost like it's a good. kind of <clears throat> apple orchard. It's got that racy yeah. acidity. It's got that kind of crunch and, mm. yeah, just slightly kind of cleaner, uh, less biscuity rich flavours. But then it depends. It's all about um, in the trade. It's like how long does the wine spend on its leaves in contact with the yeast? Mm. And the longer you can do that, the more complexity you're going to gain. But obviously that's a very costly and expensive thing to mm. keep these wines resting for years while you're not selling them. So uh, it's a bit we've, of a toss-up between. We've had some great um, we have. UK brands here, haven't we, in terms of sparkling? I, really lucky on the program. I mean, look, I, I think, you know, you, ha- you have to play to what you've got. And the fact is, we are a, you know, waterlocked country with not a lot of spare space. And fundamentally, the only, you know, you're not going to be able to do a pilot high, sell it cheap, Type Prosecco offering. I Thank think. goodness we're not. Yeah. No, exactly. So I, so I think that. I mean, I think you know what is brilliant about what the the English sparkling wine trade has done is they have focused on the premium end of the market, and they are creating. I'm going to go as far as say luxury artisanal brands that have the potential to hit interesting markets. And I think, you know, that's, that's where we've got to go. I mean, from, a, from an export and food perspective is to do that sort of stuff. I mean, I think, mm. they're, I think they're bang on the money. I think so. we do that really well. And I think, unfortunately, the French are stifled by their tradition. Yeah. Uh, and across all of their foods, they're so bound by their traditions. They can't be creative. Yet we have no bounds. And, and I think people are starting to look to the UK in every food sector now for inspiration. And I know certainly I was a judge in the World Bread Awards in New York last year. And, and they look to the UK for bread inspiration now, you know, and so many. And the French as well. We were certainly, you know, we we're in Paris, you know, with some French bakers, and they said, "Well, you know, we just don't. We can't move outside these lines. We've they got to said, make a baguette." I've like never this. come across cheese and marmite bread before, <laughs> Aiden. Tell me how to do it. They said that sort of does the head in a bit. I think. Yeah. I'm sure the Americans are thinking like, "What? What on earth is, is that? This? And what is that?" Okay, so just finally, uh, Lucy, I know um, you've won uh, lots of awards in terms of being a very, very respected wine writer. Um, Spain is another passion of yours for wine. It tell is us, indeed. Tell us, make yep. some little recommendations or some on predictions oh, in terms of Spanish wine. 
I mean, it's hard, obviously, um, Spain, everyone knows Rioja, that would be the first place. And actually, when you talk about English sparkling wine, but talking about value, I think uh, you can almost not get a better value wine in the trade than Rioja in terms of, you know, the reservas, grand reservas, they age them a long time, they release them when they're ready. And the prices are just, you know, so reasonable um, compared to like a fine Bordeaux or Burgundy. So yeah, I would say an aged, aged Rioja definitely is something worth looking for. Sherry is so loved by the trade. And it's such a shame that you know we keep banging the sherry drum and you know it's starting to happen in cocktails a bit you know it's appearing on more menus like it's a really the nice Adonis. way to start oh, a, to start a meal with yeah. a nice fino or a manthinia or something see like I remember that. going to some drinks thing it was donkey's years ago and, and there was a massive long table and they must have had I don't know 50 different sherries from the Did you palest, <laughs> no, <laughs> tried. From the palest, palest, you mm. can almost see through it, you know, down one end mm. to yeah. actually liquish back black Pedro up the Jimenez, other end and yeah. all the stuff in, in between. Yeah, I think that's why it's so confusing for consumers because they don't really know what they're going to get. But that's the time when it struck me yeah. and I thought, oh my God, the sherry's like cheese. It, yeah. There's any yeah. number of, and, yeah. and all you've got to do is find the one that you really like yeah. because there will be one that you like. And it's a fantastic food pairing one mm. as well. Well, I think people are confused because they'll just think it's, you know, Harvey's Bristol cream that mum yeah. had. I didn't want to mention that Sunday lunch, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah the dusty <laughs> bottle in the back of the cupboard. Yeah, and it's still sort of, we're still sort of hanging on to that. But, yeah. but um, um, experiment with that. I think there's mm. some astonishing uh, and, and lovely sherries out there. But I would say, uh, talking uh, more about spirits or kind of non-spirits, the, the big thing at the moment is the kind of no and low. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people, millennials drinking less, Generation X kind of curbing their drinking a bit. So I think it's very fascinating what's happening. And um I am very interested in gin. I do wonder whether we may have played devil's advocate reach peak gin. I think, but, um, I think, and I always say this to a lot of people, I said it before we came in out, that gin is slowing down in terms of the growth. But because I think it one, was so big yeah, the last Last years. year was so massive yeah. for, for all gin producers that, you know, you thought it was going to go on forever and it's not going to. But I think once you start drinking gin, it's very, very hard to not enjoy a gin and tonic. Like the population's ever growing. And I hear a lot about this millennials and, I would like the same. So it's, it's one in three, is it? Or is one? It's twenty five percent from eighteen to twenty three year olds class themselves as teetotal. I would argue that the you know the rigors of life haven't quite taken grasp yet. <laughs> they'll and they'll would, reach for the bottle once they get once they I get would to like thirty. Those same people <laughs> that, questioned that, in another five years' time to see whether they've held. That is on. that is a great. That's a great. <laughs> Do you know we've never thought of that? Have <laughs> we? like that. This is this is this is the sort of thing that you know you get you get absolutely taken apart for. But I, 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 I like the sentiment that you know that real life you know parenthood maybe maybe yeah, enough oh, to send them over the edge. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, how, how, how many teetotal parents are there? <laughs> <laughs> I've not met one yet. <laughs> yes, well, I'm sure there are. Um, well, uh, Lucy, um, thank you so much for joining us and the drinks business. Um, the magazine itself, I presume it's online and, and um, basically yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a trade. Uh, yes, it is. We, we, we go for the trade, but also our website is very consumer friendly. We do lots of fun kind of trends pieces, top tens, things like that. And we're a monthly magazine as well. So we are on our 200th and 11th issue at the moment. There you go. So, yeah. No, it's good fun. So what you really need is, if you are in the trade, you really need speciality, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and the, and and the and the drinks business, and then you'll you'll just know what you're doing. Speciality to cover food, speciality food. Yeah, bottle Come bottle back. of gin and a bit of sourdough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some butter. And got it all sorted. <laughs> there you days. Go. There's, a, there's a weekend sorted. Yeah. If anybody could send some butter, that would be great. Then they'll be fine. So, uh, thank you so much for everybody um, joining us. Uh, you've been listening to the Food Talk Show, and we're syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and podcast app on your phone. Thank you to my fellow presenters, Ollie Lloyd. I always learn something every almost every program, don't you? Always, but that that's the joy of the show is that we yeah. do invite. People who are experts in their own little worlds. And lovely people. Definitely lovely people. Mm. And thank you, Holly Shackleton, editor of Speciality. Thank you. Bread. What did you think of that? So, bread and gin. Goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> Best combination. Bread, bread, bread flavoured gin. Butter. What do you reckon? Bread and gin. Well, there's toast ale. And malty. Toast so ale, there, there is. is. There, is. there you go. Um, and if you want to recommend any future guests, someone doing something groundbreaking in the food sector, just like Seb, Aidan and Lucy, please do get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk and there'll be a link to all our guests as well. If you're living anywhere near Autrium and you want to check out the bread or you want to order some Manchester gin, 
Better make sure that's on there. I'll go for the Raspberry one myself. Um, uh, we'll give you links. Um, and, of course, we've got hundreds of podcasts. So go to foodtalk.co.uk. And, of course, we're also on Speciality Food Magazine website right on the homepage. Indeed. So you can't miss us. Um, I really do hope you have a good week. We're just going to have a little bit more gin. Bye and now. Bread. And bread. <laughs> Bye now. Bye <laughs> now.